Today I will be reading Matthew 8, verse 23 to 34. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said, and he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Then the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he got to the when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass the way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. What comes to mind for you as I say the word danger? What kind of dangers have you experienced in your life? One of the beautiful things about Willingdon Church is that we have such a diverse community People in our church family represent over 70 nations around the world. So depending on where you come from, your experience and idea of danger may be vastly different from the people sitting right beside you. Danger is inherent to the human experience, and it can take many forms, whether it's doing something that risks losing your friends, job, or reputation, or a near head-on collision on the highway, or a violent person pursuing you. No matter how safe we try to make our lives, no matter how much we attempt to mitigate risks in our lives, we cannot escape danger. When you think about following Jesus, how much does the word danger enter into the picture? Do you see Jesus as someone who does everything he can to keep us from danger, to provide us with the greatest amount of safety possible? Or do you believe he's someone who leads us into dangerous places, places that risk all of our comfort and even our lives? The passage of scripture that I'm going to be talking about today gives us a snapshot of what it can be like to follow Jesus and the type of places he will lead us if we're truly willing to give him everything. Let's get started in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. This verse begins with this simple sentence. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Given that it starts with the word then, it's worth mentioning what precedes these verses. The passage that Pastor Rob spoke on last week was Matthew 8, 14 to 22. Essentially, in this passage, Jesus heals a bunch of people, casts out demons from people, and eventually large crowds form around him. 
It's fair to assume that they were either curious about the miraculous activity surrounding Jesus or themselves needed healing or deliverance from demons and came to Jesus to be restored. As this happens, some people from the crowd step out and tell Jesus they want to follow him. And let's quickly pause there. What would be your response if you were in the crowd and saw people step out and express a desire to follow Jesus? Would you be excited for them, thinking they just made a lifelong commitment to this man who could be the Messiah? Would you be suspicious of their motives, assuming they're just doing this to personally benefit from his miracles or his clout as a high-profile rabbi? Jesus responds to them by challenging them. He makes it clear that following him will not be easy. It will be uncomfortable and dangerous. He tells the first person they won't have a place to lay their head. And the second person, he says, they have to be prepared to miss significant family events like the funeral of their own dad for the sake of the mission he'll be on. I don't know about you, but that's not the way I would have responded. For most of my Christian life, when someone would tell me that they want to follow Jesus, I'd almost immediately leap for joy as I figured they were all in and prepared to do anything Jesus would ask of them. I would do everything I could to talk people into following Jesus, and it almost seemed like Jesus was trying to talk them out of following him. Clearly, he had more things in mind as he responded to these individuals with challenges rather than celebrations. So, did these people end up following Jesus? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. What would your response to Jesus be, though? It kind of sounds like following Jesus demanded more than these people were expecting. It's after this moment, though, of Jesus performing miracles, facing the crowd, and challenging his prospective followers that the story proceeds to say, then he got into the boat. It doesn't say Jesus called his disciples into the boat. The way it's written almost implies that Jesus got into the boat and allowed the disciples to choose to follow him in there, as if he was prepared to go alone, because he was focused on the mission God the Father called him to and would receive whoever actually chose to step out of the crowd. These people had to leave the crowd, step into the boat, and truly follow him. That's often what it takes to follow Jesus now, isn't it? There are so many trends to be a part of, people to follow on social media, societal and cultural norms for us to try to fit into, that we spend so much of our lives in the crowd, so to speak, doing our best to fit in and not to look too weird or out of place, because it's safe and comfortable to stay and blend into the crowds. So what crowds in our culture are you trying to fit into right now? The crowds in this story were interested in Jesus. Some even wanted to follow him but most were there likely out of intrigue and personal benefit. If we stay in the crowds, we may never actually get to experience what it's like to truly follow Jesus. If we stay in the crowd, we may get a passing interaction with Jesus. He might even bless us and heal us, but he's going to continue on his mission. And if you don't step out of the crowd and into the boat, you'll leave your encounter with Jesus going back to life as another person in the crowd. Things return to normal, almost as if you never really met Jesus. And that's my first point is we need to figure out what crowds you need to step out of. So who gets into the boat? His disciples. Those who are faithful to following him no matter what came next. And this is a really important point because stepping out of the crowd and into the boat meant danger. Who knows what might happen next on the journey? When you were invited to become a follower of Jesus, What reasons were you given that you should follow him? 
What expectations were set for you regarding what life would be like if you became a Christian? If danger and sacrifice weren't mentioned in that invitation, then you might find these stories that we're reading today a little intimidating. However, if the reality of danger and sacrifice were a part of your invitation, then you might find them inspiring. As Jesus and his disciples get into the boat, it goes on to say in verse 24 that suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. This was an unexpected challenge on their journey. Getting into the boat to follow Jesus was unpredictable. We can see here that following Jesus didn't mean that these disciples were exempt from suffering and danger. No, they were still susceptible to the regular natural disasters, weather patterns, and tragedies of life. You might be wondering, if Jesus is God and knows everything, then wouldn't he have had the foresight to wait until the storm passes before they embark on this voyage? Clearly not. In his timing, Jesus felt it was right to get into the boat right before a furious storm came upon them. Jesus led them into the storm. They followed Jesus out of the crowd and into danger. So as waves are crashing over the sides of the boat and the disciples are staring death in the face, everyone begins to panic. Well, everyone except for Jesus. You may have noticed that immediately after describing the chaos of the storm, it says that Jesus was sleeping. I don't know if you've ever been on the water where a storm kicks up that's so bad it begins to swamp your boat, but if you haven't, let's just say it's hard to sleep in a situation like that. I used to drive boats professionally on the Okanagan Lake, and there can be some pretty large swells that are kicked up by storms that go through the Okanagan Valley. There were times when even our largest boats would have waves crashing over them and soaking people on board. And these were scary moments, and I feared for our safety because we're in the middle of the lake and our bilge pumps couldn't keep up with the volume of water entering our boat. And it's precisely in the middle of this life-threatening situation that we find Jesus sleeping. Cue the song, Our God is mighty to save. I mean, come on, Jesus, really? When the disciples are all facing a tragic death at sea, you, the Savior of the world, are sleeping? I think it's fair to assume that Jesus must have been peaceful in this moment. It's hard to sleep unless you're peaceful. He was also probably exhausted from the crowds and doing ministry all day before that. But what we can see in the next verses is that no matter what, Jesus clearly wasn't overly concerned about this storm, no matter how deadly it appeared to be. So going on in verse 25, it says, the disciples went and woke him. Wait, let's pause there. This is the first recorded time in scripture that we see Jesus becoming woke. Good job, disciples. Anyways, I digress. After the disciples woke Jesus up, they said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. They knew they were in serious danger. Now, Jesus responds in a way that seems to lack compassion. Their predicament and proximity to death was very real, yet Jesus almost coldly replies by saying, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Patronizing much? Jesus then proceeds to go and tell the wind and the waves to stop. And they stopped. Um, okay. That seems like a whole lot of stress and panic for the disciples for no reason because we can see Jesus was in control the entire time. Now, this moment is incredible as it stands, Jesus having the power to speak to nature and control it. It's mind-blowing. But 
It also goes deeper. The sea was known as the dwelling place of evil to first century Jews. There's an element of the sea representing chaos, demonic powers, and death itself. For Jesus to calm the storm at sea didn't only show his power over nature, but also his power over the demonic and all forces of darkness. This was a multi-layered, powerful moment. The Gospel of Mark and Luke record the same story, and they mention that the disciples were terrified after they witnessed Jesus calm the storm. It's not only because of his authority over nature, but it's his power over the dwelling place of evil. They thought the sea was a place to be feared, but now there's one here who is far more powerful than the sea, evoking an even greater sense of fear within them. Jesus was asleep during all of the chaos, showing that he was at peace in the presence of natural disasters and in the presence of the demonic. These things didn't make him panic because he knew he had authority over them. Okay, so why did he allow the storm? Why did he put the disciples in what seems like an unnecessary path of danger? Jesus says in verse 26, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? It seems like it was sort of a test for their faith. Jesus called the disciples out for lacking faith. They were going through a very real, very serious storm, but they were with Jesus. And that's the key difference. Storms like this before they met Jesus would have been terrifying and rightly so. However, their lives were different now. They were called by God. They stepped out of the crowds into the boat and ultimately into the inherent danger of following Jesus. And that's the second point that I want to make today. Be aware of Jesus's presence as you step into the danger. Jesus here is showing that he has power over all the created order. And the disciples were amazed. In verse 27, it says, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They quickly went from anxious to amazed in the light of Jesus' power and grace. Jesus shows us all here that following him will still mean going through danger. It will still mean risking our lives, but we ought not to be afraid because whether we live or die through the storms of life, our lives are in God's hands and our ultimate end is up to him. This is one of the many blessings associated with our faith. We no longer need to fear death. And yes, that includes no longer needing to fear death from diseases like COVID as well. Now the danger doesn't stop. Jesus gets out of the boat on the other side of the lake, and they are in a Gentile or non-Jewish region. That would have been an uncomfortable environment, as Jews and Gentiles had very different beliefs and value systems. Not to mention, the first people Jesus is greeted by are two incredibly violent, dangerous, demon-possessed men. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 29 say, "'When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes,' Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? How about that for your first missions trip? Step off the airplane and get greeted by demonic, violent criminals running at you from a dark dungeon. Welcome to Missions 101. It's also important to note that the demons call Jesus the Son of God. 
For first century Jewish people, this title implied divinity and was ascribed to the Messiah they were awaiting. Jesus is clearly seen here to be recognized as divine, the Son of God, by these demons. They knew who he was. It says these demon-possessed men were so unpredictable and aggressive that nobody would go near them. They were left in these tombs all by themselves. But Jesus went there. Jesus went near them. When we follow Jesus out of the crowds, we should expect to go into dangerous places. This is the beautiful thing, though. Remember, Jesus is there. When we're called into dangerous settings, Jesus is with us. Are there dangerous places that Jesus is calling you into that you've been avoiding? These violent, scary, demonic men come to Jesus, and instead of attacking him, they recognize his divinity, that he is the Son of God, and they fearfully ask why he's there, because these demons knew that Jesus was far more dangerous than they were. Verse 29 goes on to say, Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? The demons knew Jesus had the power to destroy them, to torture them. They also knew that their ability to possess people and create terror on earth was limited. The book of Revelation and other areas of Scripture tell us that there is an appointed time where Jesus will return and all evil will be destroyed, that all that will be left is the restored, perfected creation that God always intended for us to have. The demons knew that Jesus wasn't just going to let them have their way, and he came to set those possessed men free. So they asked him that as he drives them out, that he would send them to possess a nearby herd of pigs. Jesus granted the demons their request and sent them into the pigs, which then proceeded to rush down a steep embankment into a lake to drown to death. This story is also recorded in Mark and Luke. In Mark's account of the story, he mentions that the herd of pigs is around 2,000 in number. So just imagine that, a herd of 2,000 demon-possessed pigs rushing into a lake to drown. That would probably go pretty viral on TikTok. These two demon-possessed men, who for a long time were avoided by everyone, rejected into isolation due to them being violent, they were now finally free from their possession. They could begin to reintegrate into society and return to a somewhat normal life once again. We can only imagine that the people of the Gadarenes would have been astonished and excited to see the results of the miracle that Jesus did. It's moments like this that we pray for and hope the world can watch and see so that maybe they would believe in Jesus. The people standing nearby who were tending the herds of pigs and they they watched this whole ordeal, these people ran to the nearby town to tell everyone what happened. It also says specifically in verse 33 that they included telling what had happened to the demon-possessed men. What a cool moment of evangelism and sharing about the liberating work of Jesus. All it cost was a number of pigs, but the lives of these demon-possessed men were saved. It then says that the whole town went out to meet Jesus. Just the moment we're waiting for, when everyone hears about the miraculous work of God and they all want to come out and see Jesus for themselves, all we have left now is to insert the altar call. So the townspeople eventually find Jesus, they all go up to him and they say, 
We want to give our lives to you. We want to follow you for the amazing work that you did freeing these two men from the demons. Thank you, Jesus, for restoring them. Just kidding. They don't say that at all. Instead, they say in verse 34, please leave our region. In other words, Jesus, get out of here. Your presence is making our lives worse. Why? What did Jesus do wrong? All he did was an amazing thing and saved these men's lives, and it just cost the lives of some pigs. Well, there's two main reasons. Mark and Luke record the same story, and they talk about the townspeople's great fear. These townspeople knew how powerful those demons were that had possessed these men. They basically lost hope in these men and left them to die alone in isolation. However, when Jesus came across them, he was able to set them free from the demons because he was far more powerful than they. When the townspeople recognized Jesus' power, they couldn't help but be afraid of Jesus. And they were also upset at losing their pigs. The cost of casting out these demons was too much. It's easy to see this as the crowds don't express any appreciation for the mission that Jesus was on. They showed no gratitude for the liberation of these men from their demonic possession. Rather, they're upset because Jesus' mission made a negative impact on their economy. Those pigs didn't just represent crispy bacon and pork tenderloins. They also represented dollars. Big money was lost because of Jesus' mission. Jesus knew that the lives of these two men were worth more than thousands of pigs, more than whatever amount of money they represented, but that's not how the crowds felt. They said Jesus' presence was causing more harm than help, more loss than gain. From this story, we can see that Jesus isn't afraid of upsetting an economy. He engaged in the frivolous expenditure of resources in order to see people liberated and given a new chance at life. So let me ask you, where in this crowd of townspeople are you more likely to find yourself? Are you afraid of Jesus because you know of his power over everything in your life? Or are you more concerned with your personal wealth and the economy than you are with the mission of Jesus? From the two stories that we looked at today, we see the clear distinction between life and the people in the crowds versus what it looks like to follow Jesus into the danger. The crowds were happy to come out and be served by Jesus, to be healed, set free, restored. They even entertained the thought of following Jesus as it seemed pretty fun and exciting to go on adventures with him. I mean, he's a miracle-performing, high-profile rabbi. But Jesus broke it to them that following him wasn't nearly as glamorous and self-gratifying as they thought. He was quick to let them know that it was more unattractive and about self-denial in the long run. The crowds represent the kingdoms and societies of our world, largely self-interested, tied to the here and now, trying to accumulate as much comfort and pleasure for ourselves in the short lives that we have. The crowds and kingdoms of our world work hard to sell us on these things. And it's our own evil human nature to prioritize our own personal desires over living a life that seeks to serve others. It's easy for us to stand with the crowds. It's easy to go to Jesus for a blessing and then return to minding our own business once he comes through. 
It's easy to say how much we love Jesus and want to follow him and then live a life that doesn't reflect that at all when push comes to shove. Some people try to present following Jesus as the cool thing to do, the safe thing to do, for some, even the sexy thing to do. But what Jesus presents here is none of the above. It's not cool to miss your family members' funerals. It's not safe to go through fierce storms or spend time with violent demoniacs. It's not sexy to lose possession of large sums of money and have nowhere to lay your head. Jesus calls us out of the crowd, out of the illusion that our lives will be somehow worth living if we chase and acquire pleasure, comfort, and temporary happiness. Jesus calls us into a new way of life, into a new kingdom, one that is not rooted in this world, but will actually be inherited in eternal life and the restoration of all things. When all of the crowds, societies, and cultures of this world fade away, it's the kingdom of God with King Jesus that will remain. The third point that I have for today is only by following Jesus into the danger will we experience kingdom power. A lot of us want to be in the kingdom of God in theory, but when we see that following King Jesus requires letting go of a lot of things that life in the crowds made us hold on to, that's about as far as we get. We try to make a faith in Jesus that can be cool, safe, and sexy, but Jesus doesn't entertain those fantasies and try to convince us to follow him. Instead, he gets into the boat sets sail into the storm and says, follow me if you will. If you don't, goodbye. Will you step out of the crowd? Will you step into the danger? To experience the kingdom power that this sermon series is about, you need to accept the danger of trusting Jesus with your entire life and going wherever he leads. But remember, no matter where you end up, Jesus is with you. He's inviting us to join him in spreading the kingdom of God and inviting people into it. Leading people to Jesus is by far the most meaningful and important use of your life that you could ever fathom. But it is dangerous. Jesus doesn't always lead us into safety and comfort. Like the disciples, we can follow Jesus into the boat, into the storms, in the midst of fierce demonic activity, and know that he's always present. We know that he can protect us through anything, and should we die in the storm, our life is with him anyway, and it's his choice to let us live to continue serving him on mission or to die to be with him face to face. Throughout all of the pain and danger of this journey, when it's all over and we've been obedient and faithful to the calling God has placed on our lives, we have his guarantee that he will wipe away all of our tears There will be no more pain, no more death, no more danger. And we long for that day and we say, come Lord Jesus. But until that day, we continue stepping out of the crowd and into the danger. Revelation chapter 14 verse 4 talks about the people of God who will receive eternal life. And it says they were the ones who would follow Jesus the Lamb wherever he goes. So as we cry, come Lord Jesus, we also cry, fill us afresh, Holy Spirit, so that we may be empowered each and every day for the dangerous mission that Jesus has us on. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth and the example that you lay out for us in your word.
And Lord, thank you that despite us going through so many dangers and risky situations and following you, that we have the assurance that you're always with us. Lord, no matter how scary things can become, whether we're facing physical opposition, spiritual oppression, warfare of all sorts, I thank you, God, that you are victorious and that you lead us in a victorious procession, that we get to follow you, Jesus, into eternity. And so, God, for anyone watching this today and is afraid, afraid of stepping out, afraid of separating themselves from the crowd, God, I pray that you would give them a security that can only be found in you, Lord, that they wouldn't find their security in the crowds trying to fit into the world around them, but instead they would find themselves loving and pursuing you, Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who are often intimidated by the danger that can be associated with following you, Jesus, I pray that you would empower us, that we would no longer avoid dangerous situations uh, when it comes to sharing the gospel and all the potential threats and um, uncomfortable situations that presents. But instead, Lord, we would lovingly, boldly be willing to follow you, to share your love, and trust you, God, that no matter what comes our way, you will be there with us through it all. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As followers of Jesus, one of the commands that he left with us is that we should be taking the Lord's Supper together. The body of Jesus represented by this bread and the blood of Jesus represented by this cup. Now, when we take communion, when we participate in these elements, we are saying yes to following Jesus and saying yes to the danger that that comes with. It's also a moment for us to reflect on our commitment to Christ, both individually and as a community. I'm going to read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 onward, where the Apostle Paul describes the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread representing the body of Jesus, which he was abused and suffered tremendously because of our sins, and he did so out of love for us. Let's take the bread together. And the cup representing Jesus' blood, which was poured out, initiating, establishing the new covenant, which we are now under, so that we can be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of Jesus' blood, the perfect sacrifice. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you that you loved us so much that you gave up your life for us. And Lord Jesus, you went to extreme danger, putting your, your body through so much suffering, Lord. And as well, the, the shedding of your blood, knowing that it was the only sacrifice that could forgive us entirely for our sin. And so, Jesus, we want to praise you, and we want to follow your example, Lord, that we would no longer be afraid of the danger that follows you, but instead we would trust that you are with us every step of the way as you have shown us the way that leads to eternal life. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.